HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And, you know, you've heard me talk many times on this show that um, learning about food history has often been not an easy thing for some people. You have to kind of find your way into it through the back door sometimes. And for years, food history remained the purview of a few researchers writing papers and academic journal, for academic journals. But over the past couple of decades... Interest has really grown in knowing what we ate in times past and where certain foods and different cuisines came from. And with that growing interest has come writers, popular books, teachers, interest groups, even courses in colleges, and soon, hopefully, a magazine to address the popular interest in food history. So today I thought I would address what some of those sources are, and some of the people behind what helps us learn about food history. Emmeline Rood, who is the the person responsible for creating, I said hopefully a magazine, it's on a Kickstarter page right now and, and looking for support. Emmeline is a historian and a writer, and she was a guest on this show with her book, Tastes Like Chicken. And she joins me um, from D.C. to talk about this startup magazine. We'll hear all about it. And then I also have in the studio Ken Albala. And Ken is a professor of history, and we'll learn more about his background. And he's devoted a good part of his career to writing about and teaching students about food and culinary history. So let's get Emmeline on the line and talk about her new project. Emmeline, are you with me? Yes, I'm here. Hi, welcome. You know, this magazine repast 
is called, um, has uh, spiked a lot of interest, I think, from a lot of different people. Tell, tell us a little bit about what, what your thoughts are for this magazine, what you're trying to do. So, yeah, so I, this idea kind of came to me out of the blue. Um, I, as you said, I'm a food historian. I, I write a lot of articles for magazines. I wrote, wrote that book. Um, and I don't know if other food historians experience this, but I, I'd always had trouble finding that right fit. Um, I'm not an academic, and so a lot of the stuff that I write and I produce and I like to read isn't really necessarily in an academic journals. But at the same time, when trying to write for a magazine like Bon Appetit or Savour, there's not really as much of a space for these kind of stories. So I thought, why don't we just create our own? Why don't we create an outlet that shares these wonderful, crazy, fantastic recipes, stories, people who've cooked and eaten things for centuries um, in one place for the popular medium. So that's kind of where this whole idea came from. Well, and who do you envision as, as your audience? Who are you really targeting with this magazine? Uh, we want it to be general interest. I mean, you don't, as we're hitting the point home, you don't have to be a food historian, a scholar, to get into what we are trying to present. You just have to want to know where your food comes from. You just want to be interested in your food. So uh, we aim to be a popular magazine for all readers and all eaters, as yeah. it were. <laughs> and I think certainly there is a growing interest in that. And you even notice in, in some of the, you know, the the glossies that have been around for quite some time, like Sever. Sever has really gotten into um, more uh, travelogue and background and history of, of yeah, a lot of the yeah, foods that they write like about. Yeah. So I think that to state it from the, you know, the um, the outset that it is a popular magazine of food history, I think that that's, that really has a, something going for it. Now, in order to do this, um, I know because I did talk to you in the in the planning stages, and it's, you know, full <laughs> disclosure. Um, and I am a big supporter, but we you were looking for some people who could write some articles for for an early issue, a sample issue, or a first issue. And one of them happens to be sitting in the studio with me right now, and that's Ken yeah. Albala. But tell but so tell me a little bit about some of these articles for the uh, for what would be a first issue. So the, the theme of the first issue is the food of the gods, which I just thought was such a wonderful, you could get so many rich and fascinating stories from that. Um, and so obviously Ken, he has a great article, it's called What Did Jesus Eat? <laughs> um, and it's basically exploring sort of what are the Judeo-Christian diet back when Jesus was alive. There's not really much evidence in the Bible of what he ate, so he's sort of exploring this idea. Um, he can obviously go into more depth because he is the expert. Um, <laughs> we also have another great article. I had no idea that this was even a thing on the ancient tradition of Tibetan butter carving by um, pastry chef turned butter historian Elaine Kosrova. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yes, you are. Um, and, yeah, it's just basically the story of this rite, this ritual, and how it came to be in that corner of the world. Uh, a more recent one that I'm very excited about is uh, Soul Food Scholar Adrian Miller has an essay he's, he has just given me on the gospel bird, which is sort of race, religion, fried chicken in the American South, which is delicious and awesome. So the articles are as as 
as much as they are um, historical articles, there's also they're also very topical. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. All right, so now we get into the nitty gritty, and that's the Kickstarter program. I mean, that's 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 pretty brave of you to you know put this out it, there and. It is- a little terrifying, <laughs> to be honest. But the, the amount of support I've gotten far exceeded my anticipation. I posted it on, on a food group that I'm a member of, and it just sort of, and I made the mistake, not the mistake, I made the wonderful mistake of, of putting my email out there, and my inbox is just full of people who are so excited, they have ideas, they'd like to help out. So I think the idea really resonates with people in a way that even I didn't anticipate, somebody who loves this subject. So, Well, that's terrific. So um, how long is the Kickstarter going to be active? We have 20 more days exactly. Uh, it ends on May 11th at 9, 10 a.m., because I started it on April 11th at 9, 10 a.m. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 20 more days of, of just trying to get the word out, seeing who else is excited about food history in this way. So. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Well, well, so let's turn to Ken. Now, Ken, Ken is no stranger to this program, although it's always been by phone out on the West Coast because Ken is a professor of history at the University of the Pacific and director of the food, well, was director. He founded the food studies program in the, um, the graduate, the master's program in San Francisco. Ken has authored or edited 24 books and counting or more. Now is it 25 now? Or? About to be 25. <laughs> About yeah. to be 25 <laughs> on food, including eating right in the Renaissance, food in early modern Europe, cooking in Europe, uh, the 13th through the 17th centuries. Okay. Banquet, the banquet, which I think is wonderful. Um, beans, which is a recent one. Uh, I'm not going to list them all because they are many, <laughs> many, many, many. But... Um, Ken, you're also um, editor of the series, The Studies in Food and Gastronomy. And, and you also have a cultural culinary history course, the, one of the great courses. That's right, yeah. On cultural yeah. culinary history, available on DVD from the Great Courses program. And if you're on Audible, it's free, basically. Wow, terrific. Like 36 oh, episodes. 36 episodes. I mean, you're, you know, how, how easy is that? You just put it in there and you learn about it. You know, that's great. Um, so you really are have this firsthand knowledge of 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 what people want and teaching them and how they perceive a lot of these things. And I credited you. We were talking before the show. I kind of credited you with being one of the not if not first early people who who made culinary food history approachable to the common man. I mean, you didn't have to be sitting in your ivory tower somewhere, you know, and be, you know, in a, a holy scholarly or academic pursuit. I mean, that you wrote books that were scholarly. They certainly were not, you know, they're, they're not. Yeah, but I think they were approachable. There have been people writing about food history for a long time. Um, if you think of Kurlansky and Betty Fussell yeah. and John McPhee's book on oranges. I mean, there's, and even Zuckerman, the Zuckerman, the one about uh, potatoes, the one from the 40s, Redford Salomon. Yeah, yes. I mean, so there, there have been popular food histories around a lot. Um, I don't think it was really legitimate among scholars as an as an academic concentration. Um, even when I started, it wasn't. That was, you know, 25 years ago or so. It is now. Mm-hmm. Like now it's totally legitimate. You you know, you won't get giggles when you talk to your, your advisor and say, I want to write about food. Um, but I'm probably the first generation that really did focus on food uh, alone as an academic. 
And I think, you know, for the number of people who write um, about food and have academic jobs, I would say the majority of them really aren't interested in the popular side still. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're a handful. Um, well, I mean, I mean, there is, it is still, um, there's so much to uncover as far as, yeah. as foodways and the relationship with, you know, migrations and populations. Right. And, and, it's, and it's writing for a different audience. You know, when you're, when you're generating the information from primary source documents and old cookbooks and things, you are writing for academic journals largely and for university presses, and that's to get tenure. That's the way, you know, a scholarly profession works. Um, and I think the people who write for tr certainly the trade press usually are not those same people. Usually they're journalists. Right. Right. Yeah, I find that a lot when I'll see a great article and say, oh, I, I would like to pursue this more, possibly as a topic for a show. But the only source that I could find from that is the journalist yeah. himself and that yeah. or herself. And that was a one a one off kind of thing. You know, that's right. And I think that the people writing popular food history are getting much better. You know, there's not a lot of sloppy work out there now, which is yeah. which is good. So um, tell me, what was your reaction to Emmeline's idea of repast? Well, um, I think she just asked me, and without thinking, I said, yeah, <laughs> sure, that sounds like fun. I think it's a wonderful idea, um, because uh, I've had the same experiences that she's had, in that I would have loved to pitch a story to Savour or to Bon Appetit or anywhere, you know, where they do food stories, and I could have focused on the recipes themselves, and just said, look, here's some, here's a great unexplored cuisine, 500 years old, no one knows it, <laughs> you know, this is the the new unexplored uh, you know, exciting thing, and they have no interest whatsoever. Mm. So I think this is this will create a really interesting niche um, for serious work. I think the the lineup of writers she has for the first uh, issue is great, um, and if it can get into paper and get distri distributed well, that would be wonderful. And so, Emmeline, we were talking also about it before the show, and. And the Kickstarter program, we give all our support behind that, and we think that's wonderful. But don't give up. There's always the Internet, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, Ken, you have been involved in, in so many different facets of food history, um, and most re recently, I mean, I know we are Facebook friends, and I noticed that you know every time I your feed would pop up, your your pictures would pop up on my feed, I'd see noodles all over the place, and you're always colorful noodles, different you know exotic noodles and plain noodles. So I figured, hmm, no one can something's up with noodles, this, right? Yeah. So this has been the obsession for the past, I would say, almost three years. Um, happened totally by accident. I didn't plan it. Um, I thought this could be a trade press cookbook. Um, turns out the trade, I don't know whether it was bad agents or whatever, the trade didn't want it. And that's partly because I don't really like writing in standard recipe format. Mm -hmm. I prefer just to t teach you a technique and then say, go do it the way you like it and use the, you know, use this amount of parsley. And I think the, the modern recipe format can really be constricting and doesn't really serve well to educate people. Right. Um, so the cookbooks that I have done that were trade press, um, uh, the Lost Art of Real Cooking and its follow-up were not what really looked like old recipes. You know, they weren't. They were they were modern recipes, but they weren't in that standard format. Here's the list of ingredients. Here's the list of procedures written for people who know nothing about the kitchen. This, these were written for you know people who wanted to have fun and do something difficult and dangerous. So, this noodle soup project um, is part history, part philosophy, part partly the you know the whole world of noodle soup, not just. Um, 
you know, Italian and Asian, but uh, German and South American. And so I've tried to cover the whole world. A lot of it is, it's mostly techniques for people who think, I really want to know how to make noodles, but don't really want to buy a machine or don't, you know, you don't need a machine. And I would say maybe a third of it are things I just invented. I had so much fun doing it that, that I ended up um, creating things that don't exist on Earth. Um, yeah, well, the pictures the, certainly <laughs> it were a testament to that. And that, that was another <laughs> weird thing I never expected in a million years to become a photographer. <laughs> have, you know, um, so that was fun. And the University of Illinois Press picked it up, which, was, which is great. I mean, I've worked with them before. And they gave me 80 color illustrations, which was unheard of for, wow. uh, for an That's academic great. press. And I think this is, they see this as a kind of crossover into popular titles. Yeah. Well, you know, um, writing about noodles specifically, and then you did a couple other books for some of the, the little series on, well, the beans. Oh, the edible one. series. The yeah. edible series, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the other thing that the last time I think that we spoke on the show was about your um, handbook of food studies, like what to read to, you know, to sort of yeah. like a primer for, you know, food, food studies. Yeah, it's meant for um, introductory level food studies courses. Um, Routledge just asked me to do a second edition. So I'm very happy about that. And I think the majority of contributors said, um, yeah, they'd update their bibliographies and rewrite a little. And so that should come out, I think, 2018. You know, because so often a lot of the comments I'll get on my from my listeners would be well you mentioned some book on your show what was it or do you have any recommendations i want to learn more about food history do you have any recommendations of what to read and often i will just tell them to take a look at your book because you really start at some at the very early beginning with some of the mm-hmm. the texts the early texts from uh, from some of our well, earliest so thinking, sources. Well, you, you're probably thinking of the reader right now. I'm that's, talking about the reader, yeah. That's, yeah, it's a no, food history reader, right. which is just yeah. primary texts. Um, and it's meant, it's paperback, so it's affordable. And that's Bloomsbury who did that. Mm. Um, and Bloomsbury has been really, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very big publisher in, in Britain. Yeah. Um, they've been very good to me. They just came out with a 10th anniversary edition of my Beans book, in paperback. Huh. Retype said it and everything. So I thought like, wow, that's nice of you. Why not? Yeah. Um, hey, when something's <laughs> good, don't throw it away. <laughs> <Yep. you know? laughs> um, well, Emmeline, I'm sure you probably have a couple of questions to ask Ken as well. So we're going to take a little break. And as soon as we come back, we'll kind of get both of you in on the conversation here. Okay? Great. Stay tuned. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years and plus. Each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. 
He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. We are back and we're talking about food history, the approachable food history, and a new magazine that's in the works um, called Repast with Emmeline Rood. And she has a Kickstarter page that you can visit. And if you're interested, you can read all about it there. And Emmeline, why don't you, is there, a, is there an address you have for the Kickstarter page? Oh, yeah. The. I mean, if you just Google repass on Kickstarter, you'll find it. Okay. But if you also, there's, there's um, if you have any questions, the email is repastmag, M-A-G, at gmail.com. All so. right, repastmag at gmail.com. Um, well, I think that Ken may have the workings of possibly another article coming up soon. Ken, you said you have, you're in the process of, of researching um, a new book. You want, can you talk about your new project? Yeah, I can. It's, it's rather strange. Um, this is something I've been kicking around with for more than 20 years. Um, and actually, Alan Davidson is the one who originally oh. encouraged me to write about this. And he said, you know, there's really nothing good written about aphrodisiacs. And I had I knew a bit about it from the um, sort of humoral medicine in the Renaissance side of, side of everything. And um, Michael Lehman, who owns um, Reaction Books, you know, with a mm-hmm. little edible series, has been pestering me for the past several years. <laughs> you need to write about aphrodisiacs. You need to do this. And I was prepared to take this sabbatical, which started, which is this semester, and write about fasting. It's something I've been researching for about a decade uh, which is really, really slow for me. And I got, uh, went on a writing retreat, looked at all my notes uh, that I've taken over the years, and I'm just not that interested in the topic anymore. So I said, you know what? I don't owe the world anything with this. <laughs> I've got, you know, gotten articles out of it, and I've got other things, and um, including the thing that I wrote for Repast, actually, is based on that research. And I thought, let me just change courses completely and start something fresh, and thought aphrodisiacs would be fun. And so I got the contract, and... Um, What's sort of weird is, as a food writer, you can't really read about food and think about it because you'll get hungry, right? Mm-hmm. You can't think about, oh, maybe I'll cook this. Maybe I'll do something with this. You know, you just you just uh, turn on a different part of your brain and think, oh, this is research. I'm getting this information, transferring it. And I've been successful doing that my entire career. I can re- write, uh, read about food and write, take notes um, and not get hungry. Aphrodisiacs. I have been an utter failure thus far. Again, I'm in my <laughs> office by myself reading about how to get horny. And it's just like, <laughs> it's been really distracting so far. <laughs> Well, it's certainly an interesting topic to pursue. <laughs> um, so what do you have any anticipated dates on when you might have a, a book on that? Oh, gosh, that, it's due. Are we talking? Yeah, it's due in the fall 2018. So I would say probably oh. a year after oh, that's that. Not, that's not bad. A couple I mean, years out. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I haven't really written anything yet. I'm just doing research. Uh-huh. Um, and it is true that most of the books out there are terrible. I mean, there are, you know, popular cutesy cookbooks yes. and things. Yeah. But the serious research on the topic, the last book was written in the 
fifties, I think, or, or early sixties, and before that in the mid nineteenth century. So there's really almost no serious scholarship about it. And what I have found is that everyone makes this assumption that uh, a food will be aphrodisiac because of its shape. Uh, that it somehow looks like a phallus or something. And that is completely untrue. <laughs> there's, there's nothing in the past literature about that at mm. all. And I think no one has really just looked at it very closely, you know, to see what was the logic of why they were recommending certain things and not things. And the whole other side of the coin, which is equally fascinating to me, is why people would say, avoid these certain foods if you want to stay chaste, if, you yeah. know, if you're a monk yeah. or you're trying to, you know, or you're unmarried. Um, and the things... There's a there's a definite logic to it. Um, avoiding uh, spices, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> they thought that would be stimulating, would heat your body and you know st- and uh, stimulate your libido. So so that's so surprisingly, the, a lot of the very rich information comes from the um, comes from the fasting literature. Oddly enough, so there you yeah. tied the two together. Yeah, I did. <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> holy fat was it? Holy holy feasts and holy fasts. There was that, that was Carolyn Carolyn. Yeah, she right. was one of my advisors in college. Yeah, yeah. That was, <laughs> Columbia. That was, uh, <laughs> that was an excellent book. Yeah. Um, so, so Emily, you can possibly look forward to an article on, on aphrodisiacs. That'll, that That'll would be, be a fun. good cover. <laughs> great. How often do you foresee this magazine being public? Let's say everything goes well. Um, you know, how often would you see this coming out? In a dream world, uh, it would be a quarterly. Mm-hmm. Um, first, mainly because a I want lots of I want it to be regular, I want people to, but also history takes time. You can't expect a historian to crank out a legitimate <laughs> article um every month. So so I felt a quarterly was sort of a I mean, quarterly quarterly is not um, not overly ambitious at all. And I think, you know, I used to edit the um, uh, Food Culture and Society, co-edit it. And um, I think if you make a uh, sort of easy way to to put in submissions, there are enough food historians out there that you can get, you know, uh, a handful of articles quarterly very easily. Yeah, I, I well, even the one post, the number of people who had ideas and background, it was incredible. Yeah. I think everyone is a closeted food historian. <laughs> so. Yeah, or, you know, they say foodie in some circles, you know, for liking food and wanting to know about food. But food historians, they haven't quite gotten their handle yet. We're going to got to give a, yeah. a handle we to them. Yeah, we need a hashtag. Right, there you go. <laughs> um, well, I, I think the... Um, what I have seen so far, and, and everyone can see it if they go to uh, you know to the Kickstarter page, it's beautiful to look at as well. I mean, you, you do nice work with photographs, and, and yeah, the, I think it'll be. I worked with a, we have a designer who's incredible. She's really good. So, um, and that was the other thing. So many illustrators have already sent me ideas and stuff. It it'll be engaging. It'll be beautiful. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> that must be so encouraging to you to you know to come up with this idea and have such a positive response. In, yeah, in people. great. It's, yeah. it's incredible. I, I'm a little when I'm not terrified refreshing the Kickstarter page. I'm overwhelmed by how excited <laughs> people are. So, do you plan to get like big advertisers and put in ads in the space? No, ideally not. Ideally, it would be. Um, self-funded through just sales and I've talked to quite a few of the smaller magazines because we're, we're not going to go out of the bat have a million subscribers be yeah. the next Bon Appetit because um, for many reasons obviously um, but uh, if you say small there's no there's no need to do advertising if if it's run right and that I think is ideal um, so that's the plan don't litter, <laughs> don't litter the pages with uh, right well yeah. it's annoying I think yeah. 
I mean, yeah, I just don't think it's it's necessary. I don't think it fits with what we're trying to do. We don't want to advertise. I don't know. No. Yeah, well, I mean, the the trend in most food magazines now is the ads look like articles, so you don't know yeah, where what's the, the content too. and the and the even the articles themselves look like ads. So it's yeah, it's annoying. That's the latest thing. The hidden I can't remember yeah. what the term is, but like yeah. the the sponsored content. That's yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> it's caught me. You know, I'm halfway through something. Oh, wait a minute. This is <laughs> yeah. Well, not that not, not that it's not like good. A 14th century chef. Can yeah. sponsor content. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That'll be great. Well, you need a, a a big sugar daddy, I guess. That's what you need. <laughs> Carry it along. Um, but I think certainly if, you know, people, and I think it's a kind of a nice um, launching pad for pe- for a lot of people who might not know that they're interested in food history and will read these articles and that will be something that could inspire them to then fly out to California and enroll in the food <laughs> yeah. studies course. <laughs> no, food, but that is something interesting, too, that there are so many food studies courses now at yeah, a lot crazy. of universities that you could never find it. Before. Well, it's, I, think, I think the popularity in um, academia has followed the popular um, press, you know, and followed the magazine, not magazine so much, but I think if you look at the books that are out there now that are about food history um, and just interest in it in general, um, academia is following it. It's not not leading. Um, there is, in fact, a new uh, journal. It's uh, Global Food History, which is um, published. I can't remember now, but Jeff Pilcher and mm. um, is editing it, and it's. I think it's in its first year. So that's. I mean, it's that would that has a different a different slant. On yeah, things, it's too. it's um you know it's peer reviewed kind of academic journal but mm-hmm. that i think is just evidence that the whole you know rising tide lifts all boats as we say you yeah. know so. <laughs> that's right that's right well um i just i i can't say enough how um how interested i am in the whole notion of this magazine and i and i hope I and mean, i wish you all kinds of luck because i think it's a worthwhile project and um again it's called repast r-e-p-a-s-t repast and um that's that can be found on you can just google that and find the the page on that um while you're kind of floating around looking for heritage radio network.org because we have a nice little beating heart button and we are a member supported um radio network so it's all, all these member supported things are are very important because people who enjoy listening and enjoy reading you know they have to they have to pay up, don't you think? <laughs> Just like buying books, you don't buy a book, but you know you can listen to the radio for free or read a you know a magazine um, online for free. It's nice to be able to to give back. Ken, any anything else you would like to let us know that you're that you're interested in here? Oh happening? gosh, I could talk about anything pretty much. Um, I would I would love to give the uh, food studies program a plug as long as you mentioned it we're plugging everything we're in san francisco so we're really the only um master's master of arts degree in food studies on the west coast um i think our program probably looks something like nyu's um in that it's based in social sciences you know it's anthropology sociology history literature um business uh so it's maybe a little different in that in that um nyu's is more toward public health because it's in a school and of education. And nutrition. And, We're yeah. totally uh, an independent unit, uh, nowhere near, you know, the administration in, back in Stockton. Um, 
But um, we're graduating our first class in May, so that will be very exciting. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a two-year program, and we have a handful of students who've gone through from the beginning, uh, which is very exciting. Um, if you're in San Francisco, we also have um, what are called Saturday seminars. So every couple of weeks, we'll have an important person come in and give a talk, uh, and they're free. You just come in and beautiful new campus which is in the bottom of the new dental school building uh, in san francisco right on fifth and minna which is by the powell street station so it's yeah. right smack you know below market street mm -hmm. in the middle of within walking distance of like the ferry plaza and things like that so for food people it's great location um and I'm I'm excited, you know. It's I'm I'm not involved in the administration of it anymore, which is really nice. Um, but I'll be teaching the uh, food history class starting in the fall. Wonderful! Which I'm excited. That's about excellent. It. Yeah. Well, as long as we're plugging things too, I the, I, I wanted to announce that um, the Culinary Historians of New York uh, has just um, opened up their the applications for their new season of uh, scholarships. And this is for people who are, don't have to be students. They can be established writers, researchers, someone who's working on a project um, of culinary or food history. They, um, they will, the, you can find out all the information on the website. It's culinaryhistoriansny.org. And there are three grants given. And we encourage people to take a look. And if they've got something of interest they're working on, you know, give it a try. Give it a try. The worst we can do is say, no, try next year. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah. you know, there's there's sources of funding that are popping up all over the place now. The um, Oxford Symposium now has student grants right. that support um, students to come. I just happen to be the person that those emails came to, so I've been <laughs> involved in processing it. But there's um, there's a lot of uh, culinary historians around the country. There's maybe about six or seven different groups. Um, the culinary historians of Northern California. There's the Southern California, which has been around for a long time. We tried to tie uh, them all Boston. together one time, and yes, it didn't work. I remember know? that. <laughs> well, you know, it was, um, oh, what was the woman's name who tried to do it? Uh, she gave it some very interesting... From Chu or something. Nacho or something. Nacho. It was nacho. It was. You're right. Was, yeah, that's um, what it was. It was uh, Sandy Oliver tried, tried right. to put the whole thing together. And I think she had a listing of food museums and... Um, yeah, that was that was a great idea. Well, the groups keep in touch, and we kind of share the programs that we've had, and we keep mm -hmm. each other's emails, you know, going back and forth. But um, it's it's great that there are so once again, there's so much popular interest in in food history and culinary history with groups like this and and books and and hopefully this magazine. And yeah, <laughs> definitely the food studies course. I think that that's that's wonderful, and I know that. Many of the people who listen to this program are, are those kind of people out there. So. Yeah. Well, th I think the best part about this um, program um, in California is eventually we will be online. So you can take your a degree from anywhere, you know, and uh, I think it'll be take great. The course, <laughs> take the course take online. Take the entire yeah. degree online, yeah. every single course. Um, there's a lot of strange legal issues about operating out of state. and You know, you need a license to... Um, in California would, is, would be okay. And actually, out of the country is no problem. But like, if we want to have students in Sheboygan, <laughs> then we need a special license in that state. So for but that, and that, because that's for a, a degree program. I mean, that's yeah, it's, different. It's than, also, there are some online programs that exist, but... That's um, right. But yeah. you know what I think happened is that the um, uh, places like University of Phoenix and all these online 
companies were making tons of money and stealing revenue and students, obviously, from each state. And, and the state said, oh, well, we're going to charge you as long as you're making money off of us and taking our students. And that was the target. It hit other schools that were, you know, Pacific is a relatively small university. So I don't, um, I know some states have, ag have agreements that they can take students from other places. Um, we don't, California doesn't yet. So this is all oh. pending legislation, apparently. Yeah. Um, so if it's not online yet, then Hopefully fly so. out to California. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, Emmelyn, uh, anything else you want to say about Repass before we wrap things up here? Uh, if you like food history, then I think you will, you'll like what we're trying to do. So. Nice tagline. I like that. And please check it out. <laughs> Indeed. Check it out. All right. Well, thank you both for, for being involved in in approachable food history, bringing it to, to popular interest, I think we're going to see a real growth in, in food history and uh, exciting things to come. And, well, look what happened. This whole radio network popped up right. around yeah. food. So, you know, go figure. You know, there are people who are finally realizing that, well, food is important. We might as well talk about it and read about it and learn about it. That's right. Historians, yeah. too. You know, I mean, it's... Politics is important, and so is war, and so are, you know, there's always big <laughs> issues, but everyone eats. You, you got know, it. You, you got to eat. It. You got to eat, right. <laughs> it's the job that most human beings have had on Earth forever is growing food and preparing it. And, you know, if you want to understand what really makes people tick, you have to understand why they eat what they do and why they avoid what they do. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a great approach to history in general is going Excellent. through food. It's a great way to yeah, learn about people as you, mm -hmm. you learn about what they ate. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. And Ken, so glad I got to snag you to come in the studio on your <laughs> sabbatical here visiting New York. And, uh, and, and Emmeline, again, I wish you all the luck in the world with this yeah, magazine. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to visit our homepage, heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, and join us again next week on A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.